Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Do you like rice? I do, but I think of it more as the foundation layer that you put the healthy vegetable stir-fry on top of. But it's so much more than that, and you'd be surprised what added carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is doing to it. That's what we're talking about today. And stick around after the interview for Science for the Win with Cynthia Duraco. When we talk about the impacts of climate change, we usually focus on sea level rise and killer heat, not rice. To me, rice is more of a complement to the main course. It doesn't have a starring role. But for others, it means a lot more. Across the world, rice is the most widely consumed staple food and makes up a fifth of all calories consumed. So if climate change poses a threat to rice, we should be prepared for that. This is why I'm grateful there are climate scientists like Dr. Louis Ziska. He's a plant physiologist who spent over two decades researching everything from food crops to the pollen in flowers to noxious weeds to understand how plants are affected by rising temperatures and carbon dioxide levels. And when he turned his attention to rice nutrition, he discovered something astounding. As carbon dioxide levels rise, the nutritional value of rice goes down. Since there are over 600 million people in the world who rely on rice for the majority of their calories, Lou realized this was a very important finding. But he had the misfortune of doing this research at the U.S. Department of Agriculture under an administration that questions climate science at every turn. He went through all the proper procedures for sharing his findings. The science was vetted and reviewed vigorously, as all scientific papers are. But the day before publication, his superiors at the USDA wrote that the data didn't support the findings, despite having originally approved it. And when Lou offered to meet with them to discuss their concerns, he was ignored. The pattern continued. The department tried to minimize media coverage by refusing to write press releases and rejecting reporters who wanted an interview. In protest over these attempts to bury his groundbreaking research, Lou resigned. But that doesn't change the fact that Lou was researching something important. So I sat down with him to talk about how he did this research, what his team discovered, and what's going to happen to Lou's research now that he's left the USDA. Lou, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about the trajectory of your career and how you went through the USDA and landed here at Columbia. When I finished getting my doctorate in plant physiology from the University of California, Davis, my wife was starting her doctoral program in music at the University of Maryland. And I was fortunate enough to get a Smithsonian Fellowship and during that fellowship, they were working with carbon dioxide effects on marsh grasses. I found it was really fascinating. And I also thought, hey, here's a way that I can make a difference. So following that, I continued to work on grasses, in this case, rice, with a second postdoc between the University of Maryland and Duke University. And really interesting in terms of how rice was responding to climate, but also to ozone depletion, ultraviolet radiation. 
And then that segued to getting a position in the Philippines, and then eventually that segued into getting a position at USDA. It is a, to quote Jerry Garcia, it's a long, strange trip. So when you first started working with marsh grass and and CO2, Mm -hmm. was there a climate connection, a strong climate connection? We, at that time, um, this was back in the late 80s, early 90s, we really thought that, yes, there was a climate issue, but it was a climate issue that we thought would happen for our, our grandchildren. We anticipated that it would be at least 50 to 100 years before we'd start to see any distinction in, in regard to what climate might be doing for marsh grasses. But we knew that they were responding to carbon dioxide, and that that response was going to be short-term. So we could look at that and get a sense of how they were doing. So it's been interesting, and it just you know, in my own career, to see how much that has shifted from 50 to 100 years to well to now, and having to address some of those immediate issues. You thought you had all the time in the world back then, and I, now things have yeah. accelerated. We were very conservative in our outlook. And I understand why we were, because when you project something, you can only project as far as the most conservative person in your group. And I think that we need to go back and look at that and make a more accurate assessment, given what we've seen so far. So, Lou, tell me about the work that you were doing at the USDA. We were looking at a number of things. One of the primary research objectives was to try and understand how the increase in carbon dioxide was going to affect rice nutrition. So specifically how it was going to affect protein, how it was going to affect minerals, how it was going to affect vitamins. And we had, we no longer do, but we had the facilities at the time to do carbon dioxide levels from in the past. So if I wanted to see how the recent change in carbon dioxide had affected rice nutrition, I could do that. So that was one aspect. Another aspect that we were able to do was to look at not just rice, but also flowers. Why would we look at flowers? Well, because the pollen in those flowers is going to be affected by rising carbon dioxide. So we worked with an entomologist at Harvard who came down. We set up field plots to do a high CO2 to see how that, what effect that had in terms of flowering times, number of flowers, quality of flowers, and what effect that had on bee health and bee survival. So bees are obviously an important pollinator in agriculture, and we wanted to understand what was happening with that. We wanted to do some work in terms of arsenic. Why arsenic? Well, if you get more flooding, what happens is the soil becomes has less oxygen in it. And because it has less oxygen, it changes the amount of arsenic that's available. Why is that a concern? Well, because rice can take up arsenic. So is there a link between climate change and increased arsenic uptake in rice? That would also seem to be important from a qualitative point of view. There are all these different burning questions. There is no shortage of of challenges and questions to begin to investigate. How do you actually set up these experiments? You said you had a a plot. Where is this happening? At the Beltsville location, which is the largest by area and by personnel location of USDA Agricultural Research Service in the United States, 
It's right outside of Washington, D.C., because back in the day, if Congress had a problem with agriculture, which they often did, because we were very much an agrarian society, they went to Billsville and said, hey, we are seeing this disease, we're seeing this pest, we're seeing this, can you help us? And they would do their work there, and they would be, because of their proximity, were able to convey that work to the folks in the capital. So would they actually try to reproduce what was happening? They do. And the, the interesting thing about that location is that it's still there. It's still many thousands of acres. Uh, little bits and pieces have been chipped off. The National Security Administration is chipped off from agriculture. And it's slowly being whittled away. But that location had more soil types than any other location I know. Many different resources there that they could do in terms of setting up the kind of field work that needed to be set up. And because of their proximity, I think, they were able so to do So is that where you actually set up your rice study? Yes. Were you growing no, um, rice we, there? And Let me back up a step. The bee study, the floral study, we did directly there. The studies where we wanted to look at the recent change in carbon dioxide, uh, I'm going to get a little wonky here, so bear with me. It's easy to add CO2 to the air. You and I sitting here breathing are adding CO2 to this room. It's a pain in the butt to have to remove it to scrub carbon dioxide out of the room. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of energy to do that. We had that facility at Beltsville. So we had walk-in chambers where we could actually remove the carbon dioxide and set it to look at 1960. Here was the CO2 in 1960. Here's what it is today. Are we seeing a change in rice? And if so, what does that mean for the protein levels of rice? That's pretty cool. It's I yeah I'm I'm a, I'm a nerd so I thought it was really cool. So we could do stuff there that we couldn't do anywhere else. We were looking at the bees. We were looking at rice. Another thing we were looking at are what are called invasive weeds. Weeds like kudzu. If you're from the south, you are probably very familiar with kudzu. Does the joke is that if you left your dog on the doorstep, it would be gone in the morning. Uh, kudzu is this wonderful invasive vine that grows everywhere and over everything. There's another invasive vine, and I'm sorry, it's an invasive, not a vine, but it's an invasive plant that's causing huge problems globally, Parthenium. And we wanted to understand how the changes in CO2 and other things are going to affect Parthenium. So we had three or four things that we're trying to get done both from a positive aspect of how can we increase production, how can we make rice and wheat more resilient, and at the same time try and understand what the threats are. So what? how did you then, you were also growing rice in China and in Japan. Yes. Were there similar facilities to do that? Or? Well, those were done looking at projected changes. And so as I said, it's much easier to add CO2 than it is to subtract it. So in those instances, we used a methodology, and I'm going to get wonky here again, called FACE. And FACE is free air CO2 enrichment, where you plant a ring of tubing around the field, and the ring is shooting carbon dioxide into the middle of the field. And you have all kinds of sophisticated controls. So if the wind is coming from the west, that means you may have to you know, change the CO2 coming from the east, and dot, 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 dot. But the idea is to maintain the carbon dioxide in the middle of the field. Now, there are issues with this. You're changing CO2 sometimes very rapidly, and that may not simulate, you know, a real-life situation. But it's, you know, it's close to quote-unquote reality as we can get. Although I would argue that if you wanted to look at the recent change 
and kind of get a sense of how yields and quality have changed, that may be another way to do it. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science Podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript and links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. If you like the podcast, you can help us reach more people by simply sharing the podcast with your friends, coworkers, and your social networks. Another way to help us get noticed is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's quick and super easy. When you open Got Science in your podcast app, scroll down to the bottom to ratings and reviews and leave a comment. And finally, if you're on Twitter, come talk to us at Got Science UCS. Now let's get back to our interview. So Lou, going back to your rice study, you did the research, it was reviewed internally at the USDA, and then it did have a peer review by external scientists. So then what happened? And then the study gets published. And a day before it's ready to be published, I get an email. Oh, the data don't support your findings. What? Seriously? The email comes from the national program staff. The same program staff that had originally approved this manuscript before it was sent in. And now they disapprove it? No. So it's already this, been approved. It's already been approved. It's already gone through peer review. It's just about ready to be published. We did get an inquiry from the editor saying, we want to publicize this, which, cool. All right, you want to publicize it? Great. So they asked us, uh, you know, go to your communications staff and have them do a press release. So we did that. And that's when we got the feedback from the communications staff saying, oh, no, the national program staff says this is no good. We're not going to do a press release. Oh, and by the way, we're going to call up the other people and tell them not to do a press release either. Now, at this point, you've crossed the line. And at that point, I realized I can't stay here. Whatever God has given me in terms of my own talent, I don't have an opportunity to, to use that as a means of making a difference in this situation. I need to get out. But they've also attacked your work that, that you've done. Yes. So there, it's a credibility issue as well. It is a credibility issue. If they attack my work under this circumstance, what other circumstances are they going to, to knock my work? The people that were saying that the data don't support the findings are not people that do climate change work. And so, Are they me, scientists at all? They are scientists. Okay. But this is not their area. And after I, I was stunned by, by getting this feedback, so I, you know, hey, can we meet? Can we talk? No, nothing ever happened. So I was like, okay, this is the proverbial straw. I can't stay here anymore. I've got to find something else to do. And... It was clear that in this administration, anything related to climate change was not going to be supported. And I'm very, 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 at many more varies, fortunate to have found a, a place here at Columbia where I can continue this work. Not only can I continue this work, but I can actually branch out and start looking at other aspects of food security and climate change. Everything from after the plants are harvested... And the temperatures are going up, 
What does it mean for food safety? What does it, what does it mean for food distribution? What does it mean for food nutrition? All of these are fundamental aspects of where and how and the quality of the foods that you eat that need to be addressed. So what is happening to the rice crops that you have growing in China and Japan? They're still ongoing. I'm, I'm scheduled to go to China uh, in a couple of weeks. And we're sort of doing the next analysis, which is to look not only at carbon dioxide, but also to look at rising temperatures. And to determine, okay, if, if CO2 is plant food, as conservatives like to say, and it's true, it is plant mm -hmm. food, then how does the combination of temperature and carbon dioxide mean in terms of yield production for rice? And so we want to work on that. And we have some initial data from my Chinese colleague, and we want to build on that and get a, a further assessment. We want to do more. We're actually trying to look at, it's easy to do, you know, models and say, oh, well, models will do blah, blah, blah. Let's look at the past, because remember, carbon dioxide has already gone up by between 25 and 30 percent. So if I look back 30 years or 40 years to yields of rice, would I see a change that's already happened? And if I do see a change, which varieties are showing that change? Can I learn from those? Can I breed for those that have certain characteristics that can then take some of this additional CO2 and increase yields? Many opportunities to do this, and I'm looking forward to it. And at the same time, I'm sad because the agency that I worked for for over 20 years is not doing what should be obvious they're not doing it because of a political decision, not a scientific one. So what's happening with your research there now that you've left? I still have a little bit of it going on. Uh, I still have some friends who are interested in making sure that the work that was begun will continue. I won't name their names. So we should probably finish that up in the next six months to a year and then we're done. I mean, it's whenever you leave a place, as I'm sure you know, you don't just sever everything cleanly. There's going to be some overlap. And so some of the work that we want to continue to do related specifically to nutrition and the rise in carbon dioxide and the observation so far that as CO2 is rapidly building up, as the atmosphere is becoming carbon rich, the soil isn't keeping up, so many plants are becoming carbon-rich and nutrient-poor. That has some major implications, not just for nutrition, as you might imagine, but also for things like plant-based medicines, other materials that you get for plants. What does it do to, the, to cotton in terms of the quality of the cotton you get as CO2 rises? What does it do for the quality of the wood that you use for your house as CO2 rises? What does it do for pollen in terms of your allergies? All of these are major issues that need to be addressed, that aren't being addressed. And so I'm hoping in a small way here at Columbia that I can start to do some of that and to really get folks interested in it from the public health point of view. And so it's not a nothing against polar bears. Seeing those pictures of polar bears clinging to an iceberg is a way of communicating the, the urgency of climate change. But Sometimes the human race is very selfish, and the best way to communicate it to them is saying, here's how it can affect your health. Here's how it can affect your allergies. Here's how it can affect your nutrition. Here's how it can affect your medicine. 
if you do that, then people will pay attention because they have skin in the game. So the work that you're doing at the USDA, how, how critical is that for farmers in terms of their everyday or every crop cycle? If you're talking short-term versus long-term, what we would argue is that ways to adapt to climate, it does have some very strong relevance and with long-term issues. So we, we did a, some work looking at a transect and rice growth from Louisiana up to Missouri, showing that as the temperatures rise, approximately what date will farmers be able to return rice at X, Y, and Z locations along this north-south transect. And we see that there are opportunities that may arise by 2025 for, say, the middle of Arkansas to begin retuning as a normal basis for their, for their growth. Which is sort of like a bumper crop. It's a bumper crop. Less. It's not a double crop. It's just simply, you know, getting 50% more yield by having another month or two of growing season. So, you know, the work we're doing on breeding, trying to identify different varieties of rice or different varieties of wheat or soybean that can convert more of this carbon dioxide into yield. And what does that mean for the quality of what you're getting? What's happening in terms of chemical control of your weeds? Big issue right now because we've overused glyphosate so much that we have over 100 different weed species that are resistant to it. Uh, we found that as you increase temperatures, that has an effect in terms of pest demographics. The warmer it gets, the more pests you have. I know that seems very simple, but it's really true. And so frost, freezing, is a way of keeping your pest load down. And so when you exceed freezing, you're going to get a lot more pests. Well, what do you do if you're a farmer? Chances are you're not going to be out there on your hands and knees pulling out weeds you're going to spray more. Well, if I spray more, what's the chance that whatever I'm spraying will start to induce resistance and in whatever it's being sprayed on? That's another thing for companies to take into consideration. There are all these different aspects that come in as part of climate and food security that, again, need to be recognized from the yields that you get to the pests that you have to deal with to the quality of the food and so forth and so on. How do farmers get that information? I mean, are farmers actively looking or coming to the USDA, or how, how does it work? To some extent, they are. And uh, the Extension Service through USDA and some of the climate hubs that are still, as far as I know, in place, if they have a question, they go to there and say, hey, what are we doing? So my favorite story is one that was relayed to me about a phone interview that was done in Iowa for farmers. And so I think it was Iowa State. The professor called up the farmer and said, are you seeing more extreme weather events in the springtime when you plant? Oh, yeah, no, we're seeing that. We've got a 30-row we've planter now instead of a 10-row planter. Okay. Are you seeing new pests and diseases that you haven't seen before? Oh, yeah, no, we've got this and we've got that and the, I'm seeing this resistance. And Okay, are you putting in anything for infrastructure? for because of these extreme events. Oh, yeah, I'm putting in tile drains. I'm putting in, is it climate change? Oh, no, that's Al Gore. So they know, they recognize, and I think more and more they recognize that this is not a hoax. This is something that's real, and it's having an effect on their bottom line. Let USDA help. Let Columbia help. Let Bill Gates help. Let's put our resources together to begin to, to address these challenges. It's not a one person's going to solve the problem. 
it's many of us working together are going to solve the problem. But I do think it's solvable. Well, Lou, that's a great positive note (laughs) to end on. Okay. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. And now it's time for Science for the Win with Cynthia Duraco. Thanks, Colleen. I've got some end-of-the-year cheer to spread today, as our podcast is celebrating folks who took a stand for science in 2019. Each year, UCS nominates a group of individuals or organizations who have done what's right in the service of science and the public good, even in the face of long odds or political pressure to stay quiet. We call these folks science defenders for obvious reasons. And I'm going to introduce you to these inspiring people. I hope they'll remind you that there's still good science happening out there and good people carrying out good work. Our first defender is a PhD student in hydrologic sciences at the University of California, Davis. Alyssa DeVicentes is the very model of a modern engaged scientist. She travels to regions of California where sustainable water management is crucial. Then she uses her science background to help train farm workers to participate in groundwater management processes that meet their needs. You may have heard that water management in California is kind of a challenge. So cheers to Alyssa for bringing her skills and training to share with the people most affected by these policies. Next up is Jerome Foster II. He's a climate activist who joined the global youth climate strike movement by leading weekly strikes on Fridays in Washington, D.C. At just 17 years old, Jerome has founded his own organization called One Million of Us, uniting young people around major social issues to encourage voter registration. He's interned for U.S. Representative John Lewis, and he's advocated for the Climate Change Education Act, which would mandate that climate science be included in school curricula from grades K through 12. When Jerome graduates from high school in 2020, he's hoping to study quantum physics and computer science with a minor in climatology science. Jerome, we are so impressed with you. Our next winner is actually a trio, working to prevent heat-related deaths in Phoenix, Arizona, where hot summers are getting dangerously hotter. Stacy Champion, Viosa Birisha, and David Hondula collaborate to keep vulnerable populations in Phoenix's Maricopa County safe from extreme heat. Stacy is a PR professional and climate activist, Violza is a government epidemiologist, and David is a professor and researcher studying climate change at Arizona State University. Together, they're working to make sure people most at risk of heat-related illnesses and death, including people experiencing homelessness, people in poverty, and the elderly and communities of color, can survive extreme heat. Thanks to Stacy, Violza, and David for their life-saving work. And finally, our last winner is committed to using her voice to speak up for the world's water. After learning at age eight that dozens of First Nations communities across Canada don't have access to clean water for drinking, showering, or brushing their teeth, Autumn Pelletier began to spread the message that water is life and we must protect it. Her advocacy led her to address the United Nations General Assembly, the UN Secretary General's Climate Action Summit, and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, whom she admonished to protect the country's water from oil pipelines. Autumn is now 15 years old and was named Chief Water Commissioner by the Anishinaabek Nation, a political advocacy group for 40 First Nations in Ontario. Autumn, you're awesome. Congratulations to each of our winners this year, and thanks to all of them for being science defenders. 
I'm Cynthia Duraco, and this has been Science for the Win. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS, and especially our Partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Dr. Louis Ziska, Science for the Win by Cynthia Duraco, editing and music by Brian Middleton, additional editing by Omari Spears, research and writing by Pamela Worth and Jiayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Come find us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, and see you next time.